This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, please call 988 or use the resources listed in the episode description. To see the sources and other resources mentioned in this episode, you can visit psychologicallymindedpod.com. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming topics, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. And finally, please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to get new episodes as they post. Enjoy this episode! Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I'm your host, Grace Fowler, and today we are talking about the HBO documentary, This Place Rules. This documentary came out, um, I think, at the beginning of the year, sometime in January, um, and is focused on the work of a internet documentarian named Andrew Callahan, who kind of made a name for himself in doing this on-the-street type of journalism where he would just talk to everyday people um, at like these really random events like at NASCAR events or motorcycle rallies and he travels across the country and interviews people and his work had been the focus of a YouTube channel called All Gas No Breaks which due to some very complicated business things that I don't have the expertise on um, he had to kind of step away from that channel and started another channel called Channel 5 And his work on this type of documentary style, human interest type journalism sparked a lot of popularity, a lot of discussion, and led to him ultimately getting this deal to make a documentary for HBO. Now, when I watched the documentary, I was like, I'm so excited to do an episode on it because it has a lot to do with QAnon and the alt-right, and those are topics that I've covered here before on other episodes about conspiracy theories and conspiratorial thinking. Um, And I I was just like so excited to get to talk about those things. But in the wake of the documentary coming out, the tone of this episode needed to shift because there were uh, quite a few allegations about sexual assault um, and sexually inappropriate behavior uh, that emerged where Andrew Callahan was the accused perpetrator. So I will just say, you know, right here, trigger warning, content warning that I'm going to be discussing that. And I am linking to a pretty comprehensive Reddit post that has put together all of the allegations in one place. If you want to read through them yourself, there are far too many for me to read through them. Um, But I, I didn't think it would be a good idea to do this episode without addressing the allegations against the creator of the documentary. And although I don't think that the allegations impact the nature of 
the work that he did on the documentary and the kind of topics about QAnon and conspiracy theories that are so important to talk about, I do think that it is pretty impossible to separate the art from the artist. And so if we're going to address the art, we have to address the artist and address the these allegations. So I'm going to run through just kind of like the theme of the allegations um, and talk a little bit about like what consent looks like. Um, I will say that I think that the conversation around consent had a lot of focus in like, what would that be, 2017 when the Me Too movement was really at its um, height of popularity or height of attention. And I think some of those conversations have gone away in the ensuing years as the inevitable pendulum swing um, to the other side of the spectrum has happened. And so this this is, I think, a good opportunity for us to just like talk about consent and just kind of like as a group here, touch base on what it looks like and what are like understandable boundaries to set for yourself and expect other people to to respect. Um, so I, I say that because I think a lot of the allegations um, toward Andrew contain this very like gray area around consent. And I say gray area in that there is a lot of debate between people who were responding to the allegations about is this really quote-unquote count as sexual assault um, and the the narrative around the people who have come forward to accuse Andrew um, was was disappointing to read I, I will say as you know like a, as a woman as a mental health professional there was a lot of doubt um, that I saw online a lot of people questioning and uh, very similar to situations that I've seen in the past, a lot of, well, that doesn't seem like assault because X, Y, or Z, um, which are just ways of kind of perpetuating rape culture and um, blaming the victim by saying, you know, so-and-so put themselves in this position, or um, it seems like a gray area. And I agree that there are times where human beings are complicated, human being relationships are complicated, sexuality is complicated and navigating boundaries is complicated, but I want to state for the record that the second someone says no to a sexual act, a physical touch, anything, the second someone says no to a boundary around their body and how it is viewed and approached in the world, that should be the end of the conversation. Someone saying no is not a invitation to continue asking. And that is really the pattern of behavior that I saw listed out in the allegations, that Andrew was not someone who was able to take no for an answer. Um, so let me just give you a couple of examples of these allegations before I talk anymore. The, the first person who came forward is um, a person named Caroline who posted a TikTok account, uh, a TikTok video after the documentary came out where she talked about how she met Andrew uh, in Florida. They had gone out to a bar together and she was very much under the impression that they were hanging out as friends. She thought Andrew was in a relationship with another woman and she was not interested in pursuing anything romantic or sexual with him. And they, I think they ended up hanging out a few times, but ultimately they met up again and he was buying her a lot of drinks. She was 
very intoxicated and he tried to kiss her. She said no. Then he told her, you know, I, I don't have a place to stay for the night. I'm in a fight with one of my friends. Um, can I stay with you? And she was like, sure, you can stay with me. But again, it's not to have sex. Like, we're not sleeping together. You're just like crashing on my couch. And once they got to her place, he, according to her report, he got very pushy. He essentially would not take no for an answer. And eventually, because she was feeling like there was no way out of the situation, he wouldn't stop. She gave in and had sex with him. Um, it's not clear from what I've been able to read exactly what happened afterwards, but eventually she she kicked him out in the morning and they had a couple of interactions where it seemed like he had acknowledged that the situation was not good, but went back and forth and um, she ended up sharing in some of her videos and text messages that, text messages that she released that she had been assaulted before and that this was a really triggering situation for her. And I I think that that is an important aspect of this too, to understand that people who have been assaulted or victimized or abused in some way before can develop trauma responses that make it incredibly difficult to continue to maintain boundaries. Um, When we think about the kind of main, the four main um, trauma responses, the four Fs, it's Uh, fight or flight, which I think most of us are familiar with, freeze, and fawn. Um, Fight or flight is, I mean, it's like a colloquial term now, like we all all use it, um, but just refers to um, is the nervous system um, in a situation where it's trying to get out of the situation as soon as possible? Is it in a situation where it's telling the body to, to fight, to, you know, really dig in and protect oneself? Um, is it just freezing? Is the body just kind of shutting down, unable to make a decision between fleeing or fighting? Um, or the fawn response, which is a, a little bit more of a newer one in terms of literature, um, is where the person out of a trauma response um, just kind of goes along with and does whatever is asked of them. And um, in a way of like making sure that the other person, the the perpetrator is not angered and is flattered or appeased in some way so that the victim is not um, further harmed or damaged. And I think that it's really important to know that this is a person, the, the accuser is a person who has a history of being sexually assaulted, um, has, has a trauma history, and that when she describes freezing and giving in, that I think that is a combo of those freeze and fawn responses. And I'm not trying to Diagnose, of course, these are things that she has said about herself, that she has had trauma in the past. Um, and I and I think it's very easy on the outside to say, like, well, she should have just kept saying no. She should have kicked him out right then and there. Um, but in that moment, based on her past trauma, she may not have been in, in fully in control of those actions. Um, the, her nervous system may have been overriding the part of her brain that is able to plan. And that's just what happens in trauma responses are nervous systems override what our kind of thinking brain or conscious mind would want to do in the situation. And it kicks in because it's trying to keep us safe. And in the modern human world, you know, often those are not in situations where we're being attacked by a lion or a bear. They're situations that from the outside look like a, look like a gray area, right? Um, but the brain is not responding to it as a gray area. The brain is responding to it as this is a potentially 
life-threatening or injury-threatening situation that we are in, we got to take the, the rest of the brain, the limbic system, the brainstem needs to take over because we, we got to make sure that we live through this. So I say all of that just to kind of remind us and center that, um, you know, this, this is a person who had reported that she said no multiple times. Um, and often the kind of doubt that's thrown in by people observing the situation is, well, you know, she gave in eventually. If she really didn't want to have sex with him or, you know, be intimate with him, then why did she give in? And trauma responses are one of those reasons why someone in that similar situation might give in. Now, again, I'm not going to go through every allegation on this Reddit thread because it's just too many, but there are um, multiple other stories of women who had very difficult interactions with Andrew while he was intoxicated um, or where he appeared to be trying to get them intoxicated um, in, in an attempt to sleep with them. Um, there, there were a couple allegations about some of the people being underaged, um, but I, I haven't seen anything that's like substantiated about that. Some of them were, um, he, he wasn't that much older that they were technically not of legal age, but had fallen in that kind of window where it would not be legally considered statutory rape. And so I think that's what's so complicated about these things is, you know, one, Andrew Callahan isn't like a huge celebrity. He's not like Harvey Weinstein where everyone knows who he is and um, everyone can understand how he's weaponizing his power against people. He's a guy who's famous on the internet and there are, I think, a much smaller group of people who really know who he is and and rapidly like his work. Um, So it's hard to kind of turn the attention on, on the situation because he's not so well known. Um, and, and I think that that makes a lot of sense why the allegations came out after the documentary, because there were a, there was a bigger platform of people who would listen now, um, rather than it just being YouTube listeners like HBO is a massive platform. And for I think for a lot of people it was the first time they were encountering Andrew's work. So that that makes it tricky in that although there is a power dynamic here and that Andrew to some people is, is a very famous person and someone that they follow on the Internet to, I would say, the majority of the population is not someone who is well-known. And so these conversations around power and coercion might seem less impactful because it doesn't seem like he has that much power. Um, and, and that is the unique thing about the internet age, which we are in now and will be in forever <laughs> from now on, um, is that there are these pockets of micro-influencers who uh, you know, I, I think Andrew Callahan is a bigger platform than a micro-influencer. I think technically a micro-influencer is someone with um, 10,000 followers. But, um, you know, people are not like household names like they, they were in the in the times before the internet. It wasn't like we only had, you know, Elizabeth Taylor and 20 other celebrities and like everybody knew who they were um, because those were the only people who we, we saw on, on the movie screen. But now you have, I would say, thousands of people who make internet content with a substantial enough internet that they uh, substantial enough following that they're able to live off of that internet content and Andrew is one of those people but that shatters our ability to draw attention to this so you're probably listening to this if if you didn't know who he was before being like what 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 is happening (laughs) who is this person and I think that makes it really hard to hold people accountable because if if Andrew wanted to he could just try to start another platform and, you know, move away from his audience who is 
upset with him about this and wanting to see change from him, he could have the opportunity to take the audience with him that is still following him and and maybe doesn't care about the allegations or doesn't take them so seriously or believes his apology. He could take that part and essentially start a new platform and maybe take some financial hits, but otherwise be um, fine. Like that's kind of how the internet works. Um, and it makes it really difficult to hold people accountable. And I think makes it kind of scary for these victims to think like, will he ever be held accountable? Um, will there ever be change? And the other part of it is that a, a lot of this stuff is le not legally a crime. Um, some of it does definitely meet the kind of the legal definition for sexual assault. Um, and, and there could be an avenue for those victims to pursue a, uh, what's the word? What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, just like a criminal case, right? There, there could be a path for some of these victims. From a lot of them, we just don't have the kind of legal structure to make these things quote unquote illegal. And I, I don't know if that's the best way to make everything <laughs> possible illegal. Um, but, but there is not a lot of structural recourse for these victims of these types of situations where people are able to say, well, it's a gray area. She was drunk. She did let him stay over. There was consent and what, you know, like anytime there's that ability to pick apart, much like what I talked about in the Andrew Tate episode, prosecutors and law enforcement, like buckle at that and, and say, well, then we can't do anything about it. We can't pursue charges. And so victims of this type of sexual assault that is not out and out grabbing someone off the street and raping them, but is a very dangerous power dynamic, there's not a lot of recourse for that. And that's why I think it is important to note it, acknowledge it, and then from a position of wanting to provide some education, like what can we know about consent and about boundaries and trauma responses so that we know what to do if it happens to us and we know how to support victims who don't have a lot of other recourse to get justice for what was done to them. So kind of like in summary, you know, um, keeping in mind that trauma responses can override um, our, the part of our brains that have a plan and are wanting to assert our boundaries, that uh, if someone says no, the first time you ask for sex, then that is the last time you ask for sex. They've given you their answer. Um, and that power and coercion can can be insidious. It does not always look like beating up women or victim. It can sometimes look like just asking over and over again until the person is worn down or um, using your reputation to draw people in and supply them with alcohol so that they become more likely to say yes to you, even though they're not fully consenting because they're not in their right mind. And so for those of you who are listening, I hope that like the takeaway is, you know, when you say no, that means no. And if you have said no to someone and they have violated that, then you have every right to be upset, to consider yourself a victim of assault, to ask for help. Um, and just because there are people out there who might throw up a, what, what were you wearing? What, what were you drinking? It does not make what happened to you, um, any less terrible or any less valid. And how you see yourself is, is what is important. 
Um, and I, you know, I want everyone to feel empowered to be able to say no in a situation where that's what they're feeling and what they're comfortable with. Um, your no should be a full sentence um, and should not require any additional explanation. Um, but saying no really does mean no. So this is a, a tough transition away from the allegations against the creator, but I, I did want to take some time to talk about the actual content of the documentary. Um, so if you if you haven't seen it, it is on HBO. It's called This Place Rules, and it is essentially a kind of documentation of the QAnon alt-right spaces from 2020 election all the way up through January 6th. You know, the famous January 6th, the one where people tried to overthrow the government. And it is really quite a fascinating look at how people can work each other up into these kind of conspiratorial frenzies. Um, and I think one of the interesting points that's made in the documentary is that the people who are in these kind of movements, right, these alt-right or QAnon movements, are quite privileged people. Um, the documentary follows people that keep showing up over and over again, and we see them in multiple states, multiple contexts, and it's clear that they either have the financial backing or the flexibility in their jobs to be able to take time out of their week to show up at these places to protest and show up in a way that kind of like the other side isn't able to. And by having this privilege to drop everything and fly across the country to go to a protest or to show up at the Capitol or, to, you know, go to a Stop the Steal rally, um, they, they present the movement as having a lot more momentum and having a lot more people behind it. And when you think about kind of like the counter movements that would be opposed to them, they, they, the people who make up those movements tend to be more working class people more marginalized people who don't always have the opportunity to drop everything and, and show up. Um, and I thought that was a, a really interesting point um, to make and, and to think about how QAnon both thrives on privilege, but also exploits oppression. And, and you know, I've talked in, in other episodes about it, but, you know, kind of the central tenet of the QAnon movement is is about like stopping pedophilia, which is, you know, a horrible, horrible crime and horrible violation of children. And if we think about in terms of like privilege and power, you know, children, regardless of like their race and other identities, have a lot less power, right? Like just by nature of being children, they, they don't have power. And so QAnon, the kind of QAnon beliefs exploit that dynamic of kind of the, some of the most vulnerable people in our society, which are children, are the focus of these conspiracy theories. And that exploitation of that vulnerability is what whips people up into a frenzy and then allows them to flex their privilege by, you know, buying an RV and traveling to all the Stop the Steal rallies um, because they're able to crowdfund their life or they have enough savings or they have a job that lets them you know, go out and about and, and go to all these rallies. And it, it really is quite the, the intersection there of being on its face about protecting the most vulnerable um, while using up a lot of resources. And probably one of the most striking moments of 
the documentary, and this is a spoiler if if you haven't seen it, um, is that at the end of the film, we had we had been introduced throughout the film to this gentleman who I think he lives in like North or South Carolina, and one of was one of the most like virulent haters of Hillary Clinton and was spouting all of this stuff about like draining the blood of children and pedophilic satanic rituals. Um, and it's teased toward the beginning of the film when he's first introduced that he cannot leave his state. There's a reason that he's, he's not seen at the out-of-state rallies. And we find out at the end of the film the reason he cannot leave the state is because he's a registered sex offender for crimes against children, sex crimes against children. And it is one of the most fascinating cases of projection I've ever seen. And, I mean, the setup in the film is quite fascinating in that they print out the court documents or the whatever, like, profile that kind of lists out his charges and and um, that he was convicted of them or found guilty of them. And he, um, they put it on the table in front of the guy. And, like, the cognitive dissonance of this man to say that, like, what happened to him was uh, false accusations and that nothing actually happened and he was railroaded and he had to take a guilty plea to, to get out of it. And then within the same breath, to turn around and say, but what has been accused, like what he's accusing Hillary Clinton of is 100% true and not in any way a false accusation. And and it just goes to show the level of confirmation bias, cognitive dissonance, and projection that, I mean, this this is an extreme example of someone who is literally a registered sex offender who committed crimes against young children projecting out into other people like that that part of himself but i i think in general buying into these conspiracy theories about truly heinous activities by powerful people is a way to displace all of the negative things that people who buy into the conspiracy theory may feel or think about themselves it, it gives an outlet for all of the darkest thoughts that someone has ever had. And I'm, I'm not insinuating that everyone who thinks QAnon is real is a pedophile. Definitely not. Definitely not saying that. But all of those, like, human urges that we have that those intrusive thoughts or just those things that are like, uh, not not sure why we do that. <laughs> why my brain is bringing that up. Um, all of those things get blasted at um, politicians and people in power and it also is a way to to take back a little bit of that power to feel a little bit more in control. So I, I won't go too far into it because I do have two other episodes about conspiratorial thinking um, that you can check out in, in the catalog, but I do think one of the more important things about conspiratorial thinking that was highlighted in this documentary is the way in which children get sucked into this world. And one of the clearest examples is that there is a family in, I believe in Georgia, where they are, our first introduction to them is at a, I guess, QAnon rally where people are just like on the street yelling about pedophiles and a very young child, probably about 10, nine or 10 years old, is seen with a megaphone, like shouting truly heinous things about like satanic rituals and pedophiles and saying things like Joe Biden steals children off the street to abuse them. Like, 
things that probably a child that age shouldn't even have language for, but he is like shouting them with his full chest. And and it is quite jarring when you first see it to see someone so young fully believing and spouting these things and to see their parents looking on it proud and like supporting this behavior from from a very young child. And one thing that becomes very clear from the continued interviews that the documentary has um, with this family is that this child has a difficult time differentiating between what is fantasy and what is real life. And that is normal for a child. That is where we want them to be. We like we want to foster imagination in children and show them that they that you know they can make believe and that there are things that are magic in the world and to enjoy that part of themselves for as as long as it lasts because many of us lose that part of our ourselves and our ability to to enjoy imagination as adults um but to see it used in this way where it is truly truly horrifying fantasy of an evil cabal of pedophiles performing rituals on children to drink their blood like that's not fun imagination santa claus is real like that is terrifying stuff and children at at that at for most of childhood don't have the ability to differentiate between the real world and fantasy in the same way i you know once we get into like adolescence that that starts to to develop but if we think about like school age children preteens um yeah like like children um that ability just like is not there and so when you present them with this conspiratorial thinking stuff or these conspiracy theories it seems like a it seems real or it seems like a fun game um and and it's difficult for them to differentiate between what is real particularly when a trusted adult like parent is telling them and showing them this information and the filmmakers return to see this family um after so they they first meet them before the 2020 election and then go back to see them afterwards and it seems to have calmed down a little bit the the family is not as like aggressive uh, with their their conspiracy theories and the the boy the son says like you know my dad was really obsessed with this stuff this was all he wanted to talk about and essentially lays out that like by getting into QAnon and conspiracy theories it was a way for him to stay close to his dad and he says something about like you know I don't really I don't really care about this stuff I don't really believe it anymore which is great and I think shows the resiliency of that child um but also shows like how much influence a parent's beliefs can have over a child and I think in a way it's not fair that this child was so aware that his father was obsessed with the conspiracy theory and had to resort to going along with it to get to spend time with his dad. I don't think that is fair to that child. I think that that will, not that it will, but it could have damaging impacts on his ability to form relationships in the future. Um, And also, I think, highlights really the tragic impact that conspiracy theories can have on families that if this is the only thing keeping the family together, the only thing they're able to talk about, that's no way to build a relationship because all of the conversations are going to be based on fear and terror and truly horrifying 
images. So I, I encourage you if, you, if you haven't seen it, to at least watch that clip to kind of see how these family dynamics pay out and how difficult it is for a child to differentiate. I will say, I think maybe the positive part of it is that it also highlights how resilient children can be um, and that he he doesn't seem to be too far gone. Um, I, I don't know how he'll turn out based on the fact that they are homeschooled. They don't have a lot of socialization with other kids. And that, that boy was the oldest boy. And there are a couple of younger kids in the family that seem to be a little more impacted and definitely have a harder time differentiating and fully just fully regurgitate um, the beliefs of their parents, whereas the the older kid is able to be a little bit like, eh, I'm not sure about this. So I definitely worry about those little ones. Um, and, I, and I also don't think that this is a problem that's just in the family in the documentary. I think that this is probably happening in many households um, across the country and will continue to happen in families as long as there are these big conspiratorial movements like QAnon, um, particularly the the umbrella nature of QAnon that pulls in so many different types of conspiracy theories from vaccines causing autism to JFK Jr. being alive or whatever to, you know, the the pedophile cabals running the government. Um, it, it draws a lot of people in because it's such a wide tent, which I think means there are probably more children who are in in this situation. Um, but, I, I, you know, I highlighted it just as a reminder of like, kids kids don't know how to differentiate this stuff. And so whether it means letting kids on the internet or talking to them about these things, like you just have to be careful about the content that they're um, consuming because particularly when they're, they're young, their brains can't differentiate between what's real and what's fantasy. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters and what do I even say other than hey <sighs> well that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier starting the chat better and dating safer they've changed so you don't have to download the new Bumble now and so that leads me nicely into my last point that I wanted to make based off of this documentary. And that is just talking about digital literacy in general. Um, I think whether it's the people on the This Place Rules documentary or just generally people on the internet, um, we are not good at digital literacy. <laughs> you have probably seen this in your interactions online. Um, I have seen it in my interactions online and my interactions with people in real life, whether it's clients that I work with or friends or family. Digital literacy is just a skill that many of us are lacking. And it I understand why. I think that it's not something that's taught because school is usually several years behind the technology. And um, from what I know from my teacher friends, they are very overwhelmed and so do not also have time to teach an additional skill like digital literacy. Um, and parents often are so struggling with digital literacy that they can't teach their kids and their kids are better at the internet for most part, than they are. Um, I know that there are definitely five-year-olds who <laughs> can get around YouTube blocks faster than I ever could figure out, and I would be the adult that would be setting them. Um, so it, it's, it's hard to teach. So I don't want this to sound like, ah, we should just all be doing a better job of it. But I, I wanted to talk about some tips for increasing digital literacy and just kind of how we can do that. But before I do that, I just wanted to mention real quick 
this MIT study that I'd come across that looked at the kind of what are the effects of increasing digital literacy. And this is um, out of MIT Sloan. And they did a, a study where they looked at um, could people tell the difference between fake news and real news? And did that have any impact on if they spread the information? And so they found that people who had digital literacy skills were much better at differentiating between what is accurate information and what was not, which tracks with you know my, my thesis statement here. But having that digital literacy did make people more able to say this is accurate or not. However, having digital literacy did not have any impact on people spreading fake information. So even if someone in the study could tell that this is fake news, they were still just as likely to reshare it or engage with it in some way to boost it. Um, same, same likelihood of doing that as people who uh, did not have the ability to differentiate. They found that the only thing that um, impacted the sharing of, of fake content was procedural news knowledge, which is like just an understanding of how news and like media companies work. So people who were better able to understand how the news works were um, more likely to share content that was true. So that that was really the only thing that impacted the, the sharing. Uh, and so one of the uh, kind of things that the, the researchers threw out there about why this may be true, why digital literacy or digitally literate people still share fake information is that people may not consider accuracy when they think about what they're sharing. So they may be, when they're looking at their information that they're just personally scrolling through, they can kind of apply their digital literacy and think about is this accurate or not. But when they are sharing it, um, they don't necessarily think about what is accurate. They just share. And so my kind of interpretation of why that might be is that I think on one hand, there are people who do this with malicious intent. I think there are definitely people who have made a career off of sharing inflammatory fake content. Many of them I have talked about on this podcast, like Jordan Peterson or Andrew Tate, that they know if they spread this stuff that is either fake information or bad faith interpretations of information, like Andrew Tate saying that depression isn't real, um, that those will get attention. They get clicks, they get shares, they get, it may be bad reactions, it may be outrage, but it gets engagement, which drives their reach on platforms and drives their financial interest in spreading misinformation. So I think a small subset of people who could differentiate between what is real and what is fake news share it intentionally. Um, but I think that most people, or my assumption would be that a lot of people share content with the assumption that everyone else is looking at it at the same ways they are. So you know, for example, if I'm scrolling through Twitter and I see an article and I'm like, this looks fake or <laughs> looks like satire, but I think it's funny or I think it highlights an interesting aspect of the story uh, and I just hit retweet. My assumption in that moment is going to be, well, other people reading it are going to know exactly what I knew, which is that it's fake or it's satire or whatever. And that's not the reality because we don't all have the same digital literacy skills and the assumption that every one of my followers who sees something would have the same ability to differentiate as me is very egocentric, right? Is 
egocentrism is is what humans are really best at, right? It's just kind of like our ability to make ourselves the center of the universe, to make ourselves the main character. Um, and so I, I think that that is potentially something that could be at play here is that we just assume if I'm able to tell this is fake news, then everyone should be able to tell it's fake news. And I think the same goes the other way, that if you don't have digital literacy and you think that this thing is real and it outrages you and you want to share it to like get people upset, um, you're not expecting people to then come back with, this is fake, or how could you not tell that this is satire? You must be stupid, blah, 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 right? And that that shuts down conversation just as quickly. So although we know digital literacy, well, we, we don't know for sure, but we have some evidence that digital literacy may not slow the spread of misinformation. I think it is still important for um, our individual consumptions of information and um, individual ability to differentiate. And that is something that I see in the documentary is that many of the subjects who were interviewed clearly are not able to tell the difference between what is fake, what is real, um, and end up very confused by the content that they're seeing. So I wanted to go over a couple of tips for increasing digital literacy that I got from the resiliency initiative that I think are really great skills and that these are things that we can be doing when people tell us to quote unquote, do our own research. (laughs) These are the things that we can be doing to do that, to seek out information and ensure that it is high quality. So the first thing to do is when you're coming across something on the internet, check the source. Who published it? Who wrote it? What is the network? Um, kind of who are the major players in putting this information out? If you are reading an article and you know that it comes from the website, the Babylon Bee, it is probably a satirical article and it is definitely a satirical article with an right wing bent because that's what the Babylon Bee is. So even if you see something that's like, oh my gosh, if this is true, that's crazy, but it's from BabylonBee.com, probably not true. And it is definitely crazy, but it is not true. Same with like, who's the author, right? If you're starting to see the same people publishing the same things over and over again, um, watch out. Like, what is their agenda in publishing those things? Um, Kind of what are their credentials? Are they even qualified to to be writing or talking about these things? Um, You know, I think of, I think I talked about, gosh, a long time ago. Oh, during Critical Race Theory, I talked about this guy, Christopher Russo, who basically like single-handedly manufactured the outrage against Critical Race Theory. If you're seeing stuff from him... Um, it's fake. <laughs> it's automatically fake. There's a free tip for you. It's fake. This guy, this guy writes stuff in bad faith because he's trying to get reactions out of people. Um, so if you're like, hmm, I've noticed that this author is always kind of publishing things that or writing things on their blog or their Substack or whatever that always seem to have an agenda, um, be suspicious of that source, right? And kind of hold that information as you look at it. When you're looking at images, um, use the Google reverse image. Uh, function. It lets you search that specific image and kind of see where else on the internet has it been found. It can even help you locate the origin of the photo. This is really important to make sure that a photo is like actually a real original photo and not a doctored photo or not like a stock photo that's been manipulated in some way. Um, it's, it can just, and it can be also helpful in catching people in a lie. <laughs> um, people steal images online all the time. Like it's just kind of very easy to do on the internet. And so to find out like where else has this image been posted is super helpful. And the resiliency initiative also recommends like kind of doing this multiple times. So doing these searches, the image searches as well, multiple times, just like kind of make sure we've really actually found the source of where this information is coming from. And 
you know, I can see how this would slow down the spread of inaccurate information if you're taking the time to look through all of these things before hitting that share or, or retweet button. The next thing that they suggest is to, to use some critical thinking. So to kind of ask yourself a series of questions when you're looking at a piece of information on the internet. The first thing is like, what does the information or the, the piece that you're looking at, what is its motivation? Does the piece want to sell you something? Does it want you to share it? Um, does it want to change your thoughts or behaviors in some way? Kind of what is the motive of the content that you're looking at? The hope is, is that with, you know, real information, real news, the kind of motivation is just to share information, to provide either opinion, if it's like an opinion piece, or to provide facts in a more like journalistic piece. If there are indications in the article that they want you to buy something, like I see this a lot with like um, health stuff, right? Like all of a sudden after you read the article, you're like, I think I should buy a bunch of supplements. That means that article was trying to get you to buy something. Um, Are they wanting you to share it? Are there calls to share? Are there things that insinuate other people need to know this in the article? Um, Or are they asking you to change how you think about something or how you behave? Is it very persuasive and telling you that X, Y, or Z is bad or wrong for you to be doing? And I will say from as a mental health professional who puts content on the internet, you know, there are there are times when I make exhortations or calls to action or say, like, this might be what I would recommend in this situation. Um, but my kind of goal in putting out that information is never to be like, this is the only way to do it and you have to change the way you think and feel and behave about this thing. It is to present an option, an alternative, a whatever you may call it, and then let my reader or listener decide what they're going to do with the content. A lot of predatory content, whether it's mental health-based or physical health-based or whatever, uh, has an agenda about what they want your outcome to be. I think this is how a lot of, like, quote-unquote, crunchy parents get sucked into conspiracy theories, is they'll be reading things about, like, detoxing from heavy metals or whatever. And the point of the article is, like, and now buy this person's, um, like, heavy metal detoxer and get rid of all these things in your life and be afraid of heavy metals. That is the agenda of the article. And it's usually going to be like pretty upfront, but they're using the fear that parents naturally have about harming their children. And so it can be very, very predatory. So we definitely want to be able to think critically about what is the intent behind the information, but we also want to apply that critical thinking to our intent to share the information. So when we find ourselves looking at an article or something online and we want to hit that retweet, that share button, what is our purpose in doing that? Is it to warn other people? We feel like this is important information to have and they should know about this thing that's going on. Is it to generate outrage? Are we sharing it because we know it'll get engagement and it'll get clicks because people are going to have controversial reactions to it? Um, Or are we sharing it because we want to kind of appear like we are the first people to know about a thing happening and we want to jump on news as soon as possible. And I think the first one is probably the one where we're going to be the safest. Like I would say if you're sharing information when you are in a place of, oh my gosh, this sounds so dangerous, like I have to let people know and warn them, like give yourself a minute, slow down, make sure you're checking your sources, checking who wrote it, who's publishing it, and like giving yourself time to think before hitting the share button. But I think that that motivation is is generally like 
fine and, and can be um, a very like healthy intent to want to share that information with others. If you're sharing something just to generate outrage, I would push back and argue that maybe we don't need to do that. That that's one way we can kind of fight back against the algorithms, not to be too like iRobot about it, but one of the ways that we can help stop the spread of misinformation is to not engage with enraging content because that is what fuels these algorithms. Like if you've been on social media for more than 10 seconds, you'll know that the things that get pushed to the top of your feed, regardless of what platform you're on, are the things that are getting the most engagement. And things that get engagement are usually things that make people mad. So are you sharing this because it made you mad and you know it'll make other people mad and it'll get you attention and, and um, engagement? Then that's probably not a charitable intention for sharing information. So I would gently encourage holding off, you know, again, giving yourself time, checking those sources, really asking yourself, is this something that I want to be engaged in? And I will say from, you know, to tie back to the documentary, when you watch the way that people talk about this like QAnon stuff or these conspiracy theories, you can see that people are genuinely outraged and wanting to spread that feeling around. And it turns into this like echo chamber of people whipping each other up into the next level of outrage, which leads to outrageous claims <laughs> um, and, and like furthers the spread and the kind of intensity of the conspiratorial thinking. So if we're sharing things just to generate outrage, I would say that's probably not a useful way to go about spreading information. Um, and the third one, if you're sharing something to be like, oh my gosh, no one else knows about this, like I might be the first to know about it. Again, check your sources. Be sure, particularly with some of this stuff where I, I see a lot of people share articles in this context where it's like, why is no one talking about X, Y, or Z? And usually it's like someone has been, you just haven't seen it. Um, or it's fake, and that's why no one is reporting on it. Like, if, if you're finding yourself being like, wow, there's all these, I'm finding all these articles about, like, why uh, aliens are real, and no one seems to be reporting on it. Like, just, you know, give yourself a minute to think about, like, why why might that be? Um, or, you know, remembering that we are in, like, pretty tight bubbles on social media. The algorithm really reinforces, like, what information you see. So if you find yourself thinking, wow, no one else is reporting on this, just, like, do a quick search, you know, Google it, get off of the platform, see what else is out there, because you'll often find that someone else is talking about it. There's like, what, almost 8 billion people in this world, like somebody else is talking about this thing. And if absolutely no one else is talking about it, that is also a sign that maybe it's not real information. So those are just things to keep in mind in terms of digital literacy. I want to assume that all of my listeners are very digitally literate. Um, so these might be tools to be helpful to share, like, with your family members or children or whoever in your life who seems to be struggling with this. Um, and, you know, kind of like the takeaway from this episode is to just like check, double check, triple check, quadruple check <laughs> the, the information that you're sharing and really just like check in with yourself before you hit retweet, share, post to your story, whatever. And just like double check with your intention of like, why am I doing this? Is this going to serve me well, am I really advocating for a cause here or am I just generating engagement and seeking to like continue to spread this feeling that I'm having? Because although our feelings are valid and we there's lots of things in the news that rightly make us angry, 
it may not be the most effective thing to try to whip everyone else up to feel the same way. Um, so just, you know, giving ourselves a little bit of a buffer time. Um, or even I would add on of like deciding which way you're going to share it, right? Are you going to share things just with your close friends? Maybe this is a link to put in the group chat and not to post on your Instagram stories. Maybe this is a link to share to your like um, mutuals only on Twitter and not to like everybody, you know, like there's also different levels of how we share information. So I just think the kind of basic rule or guideline I would suggest is just check in with yourself first and then check your sources before sharing on any level. So I know this episode has kind of been all over the place. There's like a lot that I wanted to talk about. Um, and I, you know, I do just want to close up by saying like, I definitely believe all of the the people that have come forward to accuse Andrew Callahan. I think that what he has done or been accused of is unexcusable. And the apologies that I've heard from him have not been super great. And so I think in order to continue to engage with his content, I personally would like to see a more clear apology and clear steps toward making things right. Um, I would say that as people in the world that are engaging with internet content, like, just be careful, like, who you engage with, who you allow yourself to be influenced by, like, what type of information that you share. And, you know, when you say no, that is a full sentence, full stop. When you say no, that is your response and no one should ever pressure you or continue to ask you for sex or things like that. I know we don't live in a perfect world where that's always respected, but I just really want to push home this point that like that is the truth. That when you say no, it means no. And the people who would push back and wear you down or do anything else like that, those people are in the wrong. No matter how many excuses can be made for them or quote unquote it's a gray area statements can be made like the fact of the matter that someone has violated your consent is a it's an action that is wrong and it may not be illegal in the criminal justice system but it doesn't mean that it's appropriate behavior and it also doesn't mean that you should feel ashamed if a trauma response came up and you ended up changing your answer or feeling worn down or you know, whatever happens after that no and the person keeps pushing, it's not on you. It is on the perpetrator, the person who keeps going after getting the, the first response. So I know a heavy note, wasn't anticipating having to talk about that in terms of this documentary, but I will say like, I'm thankful that the women came forward and people have been open with sharing their stories. Um, I think especially for that first woman, it was really scary um, to to do this. And she was pretty clear in her first few videos that she felt like now that there's a broader audience that she might get more people to believe her or more support. Um, and, and she wasn't quite sure what she wanted out of the allegations, but she did want people to know now that his work is being spread. And so I, I think it was very brave of her to come forward. So all in all, I do think the documentary was good and highlights a lot of really weird things about conspiracy theories and, and QAnon and kind of like the way in which the alt-right is allowed to like flourish and kind of use their resources to spread their message. Um, but wish that the creator of the documentary wasn't violating people's consent and could stay like kind of stand up and say what I did was wrong. And here's how I'm going to get better. And I'm going to take a step back from, con I think he has taken a step back from content creating um, and has acknowledged that like, he's going to go get treatment for alcohol abuse and, and stuff like that. But 
there's still other other things that could be done as apology could have could have been a little more clear but i will just say thank you for for listening through to this episode it definitely was not what i expected when i first started writing the script um but i hope that that it was informative and you were able to take some something away from it especially if you're not able to watch the documentary um with that thank you as always for listening all the way to the end and i will see you in the next episode bye bye <laughs>